Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is The Triumphal Entry. Easy title for today. The Triumphal Entry, Mark 11, 1 to 10. And we're actually going to do this in two parts. I wanted to go through the whole thing because it, it's in all four Gospels. It's, it, it's in all four Gospels, obviously very, very important to the Holy Spirit to be in all four books of the, of the, the Gospels of the Bible. And I wanted to do it in one week, but because of communion and also there's just Luke, I, I, got, I could connect the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, but I couldn't get the Luke story in. There's just some really wild, shocking, prophetic things that are going to just just really shock you. So next week, AIDS walk, but the week after that, we'll be back here finishing up in Luke with the Triumphal Entry. Don't miss it, but look, if you can find the first rock concert, see if you can find the first rock concert in Luke, the story of the Triumphal Entry in Luke, okay? But it's, it's just going to be wild. So part two, this one's going to be a little shorter with communion, but part two is going to be wild, okay? So here we are entering the final week of Jesus' life. Pre-crucifixion, obviously we know he came back alive three days later, and he also is alive today. But the the final week of his pre-crucifixion life, we're entering into that. And it's also the week of the Passover in Jerusalem, which is why Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, is to be sacrificed at the Passover. He's the Passover lamb. In fact, the religious leaders were like, oh, we're not going to kill him during the Passover. There'll be a riot. They're all worried about that. But the Holy Spirit intervened and overruled, and he was killed during the Passover. He had to be crucified on the Passover because he's the Passover lamb. The whole Passover lamb is looking to Jesus Christ. It's all prophetic of Jesus Christ. So it's the week of the Passover in Jerusalem, and this is a Roman nightmare. The Romans couldn't stand the Passover week in Jerusalem because they had to be on high alert. You know how when we have terrorist activity and we have different levels of alertness? This was high alert. Thousands of passionate religious Jews would converge on Jerusalem at this time, and the population would triple during the Passover. Emotions ran very, very high because there was a messianic expectation at the time of Christ, huge messianic expectation. Everybody's waiting for the Messiah to come again. And they want, the real goal of most people was they were hoping that the Messiah would come to free them from the Roman yoke. They, felt they were under this Roman oppression that was ruling the whole world, and they wanted to be freed, and they believed the Messiah would set them free, which is true. It's going to, it's going to be happening at the second coming. They, got a little, they didn't see the first and second coming. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And in case the Messiah doesn't show up for this Passover, the zealots were always happy to get things started a little bit early. The zealots were the terrorists of that time. And one of them was a a disciple of one of the apostles, was a zealot. They were looking for a chance to spark a revolution by assassinating somebody. There was just high, high alert. And it would only take a very small spark to incite a riot that would just burn out of control, which is what happened ultimately to Jerusalem. They finally did have the revolution and and the city was destroyed. Once again, we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, The best example I can give you of the high religious fervor, I was trying to think of what would give you a picture of this, would be what just happened in Mecca. The Muslims were going, just were in Mecca for the, the, the big pilgrimage, and look what happened. Something sparked a stampede, and 700 people were stamped, stomped to death in Mecca. 
don't know if you were following that in the news. It was terrible, terrible what happened. But that's kind of the picture, that religious fervor and excitement and, and it just takes that little spark to, to get things out of control. That's what it's like in Jerusalem as Jesus is getting ready to come in for the triumphal entry. This is the atmosphere that Jesus rides into in Mark chapter 11. And what multiplies the effect of this is what we just spent four weeks on was the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And that's got everybody all excited. The crowds are really excited because, hey, that's a big deal, right? Everybody knows about it. We looked at that. Everybody knows about it. There's this, they're all excited about Jesus. And not only that, the religious leaders, far from being excited, are in a murderous rage because there's two divergent responses to this resurrection of Lazarus. The people are excited and the religious leaders are threatened and they're in a murderous rage. They want to kill Jesus. This is where Jesus comes riding into. That's the background of what we're going to see today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. What he came into Jerusalem to do for us as we get ready for this communion Sunday. Riding into the excitement, but also knowing full well that at the end of the week he would be crucified. We thank you for his sacrifice, his body and his blood for us. I pray that every one of us here would understand that and, and would put our faith in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, let's pick it up here. Now, once again, all four Gospels have the story. We're going to hit different parts of them all at some point. Although, like I said, next, week, uh, next time we get together, we'll be in Luke. That story is part two. But let me start with verse 1 of 11. Mark, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, we see in the first six verses here that Jesus sends two disciples to hotwire a donkey. And he also shows his supernatural knowledge. Jesus, just as he knew he was going to die on the cross, he also knew where that donkey was and what was going to have to be said. It's just God, it's just showing his divine omniscience, right? Jesus knows everything. Uh, that d supernatural foreknowledge that shows, once again, he was God's son. But why a donkey? What's that all about? Well, actually, donkeys were a very fancy ride. It's like a Porsche. 
hey, go borrow this, go hotwire hot a Porsche, you know, or a Jaguar. That was a very, very fancy ride. You don't think of donkeys that way anymore in our culture, but then it was royalty used donkeys. That's what they rode. They were considered a very fancy, expensive animal. In fact, in Judges 10, 3 to 4, uh, there was a judge named Jer, and uh, Jer had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they ruled over 30 towns, all right? So you see the donkey was a very fancy ride. It was expensive. It showed wealth and position. It would be like riding in a limo. You know, somebody pulls up in a limo. Well, they pulled up in their donkey back then, all right? It was a big deal. Once again, uh, think of Saul before he became king. Remember King Saul? As they were looking for him to crown him king, anoint him king, make him the king, they couldn't find him. Why? He was out looking for his father's donkeys. And you say, what's the guy out looking for donkeys? Why don't you just let him run off? Who cares? Because they were expensive. It's like losing a, a, a couple expensive cars. Uh, so that's, that's why donkeys were considered very, very fancy. And people who had the money rode the, the donkeys. It was a big deal. And it's interesting that this donkey was unbroken. No one had ever ridden on it before. And what do we see here? Jesus, master of the animal kingdom too. Once again, we see his divine power riding on the, you don't think much of it, but hey, if you've ever ridden something that hasn't been ridden before, you know it's a big deal. Anybody ever ride on a horse for the, the, the horse that has never been ridden before? It's not easy to ride a bucking bronco, right? They, they don't want to be, nobody wants to be, yeah. and growing up on a farm, we rode, we tried, we had to ride the horses, and, and they are nervous at first, it was really hard. We rode everything on the farm. We rode goats, you ever ride a goat? Not easy to do. Uh, sheep, sheep do not like it, they don't like it. Uh, uh, Cows, whoo, those are harder than a horse to ride. Cow, they do not like it when you get up on top of them. And we try to ride them out of the barn, and my dad wasn't around. So uh, we'd ride the cows, and, um, and also uh, ox. My dad tamed an ox, Dave the ox. Uh, Jim and Diane rode Dave the ox, right? With very calm, very calm Dave the ox. Huge, what was it, 1,500 pounds, giant ox. And we used, my dad used to put all the kids on at once, all the all seven, whoever we had at the time, seven would ride on him at once. And uh, one time he, they all slid off. My Kim wasn't too happy about that. But anyway, because uh, he was big. But the worst thing I ever rode was a pony. I had a pony named Bullet. And you've probably heard some of my Bullet stories. He, he was broken, but he did not want to be ridden on. He was just always trying to knock us off. He'd ride under trees and knock me off. He, if I put the sulky on him, he'd go right between the tractors and knock me off. He's like, never want to be broken. So anyway, the, idea, the thing is this. Animals that have not been broken are very, very difficult to ride. But Jesus just gets on this thing. And once again, just as he knew about this and just as he gets on the animal kingdom, he's, once again, it's showing that he's the divine son of God. He's showing this, okay? There's another reason why Jesus rode on a donkey. Royalty, because the royalty, the, I already mentioned that, don, rulers rode donkeys, so it's because he's royalty. But he also fulfilled a prophecy by coming in on this donkey. He fulfilled a prophecy, a prophetic royal prophecy. In fact, in Matthew 21, in Matthew 21, verse 4, it says this. This, talking about the triumphal entry, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this comes from Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 9.9, this is a prophecy. Once, a, once again, a, a prophecy here, a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah 
hundreds and hundreds of years before, before Christ, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is officially presenting himself by coming on this donkey, which was a royal ride. He was officially presenting himself as the Messiah. He's fulfilling a prophecy. There are hundreds of prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. Intricate prophecies that had to be fulfilled to prove that he was the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Incredible, the prophecies. I remember even when I was struggling with trying to figure out, is Jesus really the guy? What had such an impact on me was the prophecies. Unbelievable. The ones that he fulfilled that can't be fulfilled anymore. Had to be fulfilled by Jesus in that time because it's impossible. The things, the places he went and the things that he did, we'll talk about that more. The temple that he had to come to, we'll talk about that more next time. That's such amazing proof. Jesus proving he was the Son of God by fulfilling these prophecies. But he's presenting himself as the Messiah. Now, Mark. Mark doesn't record this prophecy. And Mark, back when we read through Mark 1 through 10 there, didn't record that, right? Why wouldn't Mark write about this? Because he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to the Gentiles, right? It wouldn't mean anything to them, this riding in on the donkey and the Messiah. They didn't have the Old Testament, right? But Matthew is writing, writing to his fellow Jews. And he's writing that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And they would know this prophecy. That's why Matthew recorded it Mark didn't. The Holy Spirit had a reason. And Jesus is presenting himself as the king of the Jews. The mask is coming off. Remember the secret Messiah we keep talking about? That's one of the themes of Mark, that he kept it secret until the very end because he knew he'd be crucified. The secret, no more secret Messiah. The time has come. The mask has come off the Lone Ranger. Batman takes off the mask, right? He's ready for the cross. Ready for the cross. The clock is now really ticking. Verses 7 to 8, back in Mark chapter 11. Verses 7 to 8 say, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. There's this massive outpouring of excitement that he's coming. It kind of reminds me of the Pope's visit last week, right? You know, everybody it was just all everybody was so excited and all as excited, but I was actually heartbroken. I was heartbroken as like we watched that because that worship and that reverence that they're showing to this mere man, given to a man, should only be given to one man, the God man, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need a human representative on earth. That's what the Holy Spirit's for. Somebody said to me, well, it is important. There's, a, there's somebody we can turn to that represents Christ on earth. I said, we don't need that. We have God's word, the words of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who represents Christ on earth. And he's in each of our hearts once we put our faith in Christ. We don't need any man to come between us. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. So... What happens here, though, is they are so excited about the Messiah coming. They're excited about Jesus. It's very similar to when they would welcome a king. In fact, in 1 Kings 9.13, 1 
In 1 Kings 9.13, let me just read to you just a little picture of what would happen. Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 9.13. They're talking about what happened when Jehu was being made king. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. They blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So we see in the Old Testament many times when someone was going to become a king, they would throw the cloaks down for them to walk on. They had these outer garments that they would wear and they would throw that down and that the king would walk on. And also if it was coming into the town, they would throw the branches on the street. That's what, was a, uh, the, what they would do to greet a king and welcome a king. And that's what they're doing for Jesus. So this is a, the presentation of the royal Jewish Messiah. That's what we're seeing here. The people know it. The, the Messiah is entering into Jerusalem. They're all excited. It's a presentation of the royal Jewish Messiah. The king of the Jews is coming in. But there's also another parallel, interesting parallel from history. And that's the Roman triumph. The Roman triumph. For those who know Roman history, what would happen is after a Roman general won a huge, great victory, they would have a triumph. They would come into Rome, and they would call it the, the Roman triumph. They had to kill, in order to qualify for the royal triumph, they had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. At least. Hopefully they kill a lot more, they hope. But they had to kill at least 5,000, and then they were honored with this triumph, this big parade. And the general will ride into Rome on a golden chariot. They would give him a golden chariot to ride into on a golden chariot, and they would have this like a ticker tape parade. Everybody would just be all out. All of Rome would come out, and they'd have this, the priests would burn incense ahead of them. And, 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 and behind them were all the captives. They wouldn't kill everybody. They would bring a bunch of captives back in chains, and they would end up, they would ride this Roman triumph right up to the arena, and then they would take the captives in the chains and put them in the arena, and they would have to fight the wild beasts. They would be killed by the wild beasts in the arena. Jesus' triumph had some very key differences, didn't it? First of all, he didn't ride in a golden chariot. He rode in on a donkey, which was brilliant. God doing this was brilliant, right? Because he could have come in on a, a, a chariot, but if he came in on a chariot, what would the Romans have done? Panicked because they would have seen this, this Roman triumph. And here's this guy coming and going to try to become the new emperor here in, in, in Jerusalem, right? But coming in on a donkey, they kind of missed it. <laughs> what? Riding in a donkey? Big deal. And he didn't have captives in tow. He wasn't dragging captives along in their chains. Instead, the people that were following Jesus were the people that he had set free. He had already set them free. For instance, who did we just see that he healed? Bartimaeus, that blind beggar who's not blind anymore, not a beggar anymore. Following him, that's who Jesus had following him. The blind beggars, these fishermen and tax collectors and zealots that he had set free. And Bartimaeus is a picture of us. We all come to Jesus as blind beggars. Spiritually blind, begging for salvation, begging for grace, that gift that we don't deserve. Life, a new life here on earth, an eternal life with God someday. That's what we're begging for. And we receive it by faith. We are, we are all, we are, he's a picture of each one of us. And Jesus' real triumph, his real triumph wasn't because he had killed people. But because what was going to happen in a very short time, that he was going to die himself. 
That's his triumph, that he is going to die on the cross. And not just die, but resurrect from the dead. And by doing that, he was going to defeat our real enemies. Not killing people, but our real enemies defeating sin, defeating death, defeating Satan's power in our life. And look what the people shout back in Mark chapter 11. They're all shouting. Look what they shout here. Verse 9 in Mark 11. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna means, it's, it, it means save now. Save now. It's a praise for triumph. It's like saying, we're saved or we're going to win. We win now. It's, it's like the saying there. They're realizing that they, their salvation is here. It comes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm that was given prophetically by, by David, King David. And it's a prophecy, and the people are connecting the dots. They know who's coming in, and they start to quote Psalm 118. The messianic prophecy about Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's look at Psalm 118, because it's amazing what they quoted here. In Psalm 118, verse 25, O Lord, save us. That's a Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So we see right there that they're connecting the dots. And then they also not just connect the dots for the Messiah, but they finish up by saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're connecting the dots even further because the Messiah was prophesied that he would be a son of David. And they're realizing that this is who this is. If you read Jesus' genealogy, he is a son of David, connected right back to, to King David. And, and remember when blind Bart, when he was healed, blind Bartimaeus, when he was healed, what was he yelling out to, to, to Jesus? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Connecting, the, he, he, this blind guy realized who he was. Everybody's pumped up. Everybody's going crazy. They're all pumped up. They're all very, very excited here. But not everyone. The Pharisees were not excited about what he was saying. We're going to look at that next time. Once again, we don't have enough time to really go into the whole Luke passage there because it's, uh, it's, it's wild. But, but they're not excited. Wait till you see what they say. But the crowd is in, is in a frenzy. But even though the crowd is in, a, is in a frenzy, they miss something very important. Something that even the disciples didn't grasp yet. In fact, in John 12, 16, it says this. In John 12, 16, listen, listen to what it says about the, this whole event here. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Saying even the disciples didn't really understand the full significance of Jesus writing in. They didn't understand why he was writing in. They were excited with the crowd. They can't wait. Hey, we're writing with, we're the top 12 guys in the cabinet of the new Messiah, of the King of Jerusalem. They're all excited. They didn't get it. People, everybody's excited, but they didn't understand why Jesus was really there. They were so focused on Psalm 118. Look, let's look back at Psalm. They were so focused on Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Remember I read that? O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. They're all focused on that so that they missed the verses just before this. They didn't quote these. Look back a couple verses here to verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. They missed a very important part of the Messiah and the prophecy. The stone the builders has rejected. Jesus first had to be rejected by the builders. The religious leaders of the, in Jerusalem rejected him. That's why he was crucified. At his first coming is the crucifixion. He came to die for our sins, to pay for our sins. He came to, to give us victory over sin, over death, over Satan. That's why he was coming, and people didn't get that. You know the, the song we sing sometimes, the worship song, This is the day, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. You guys know it. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hey, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. You guys know it. And what do we, when we sing that song, we always sing, this day, this is the day. We're excited about this day, right? But that's not what the song is talking about. That's not what the the verse is talking about. The verse is saying, this is the day the Lord has made. What day? The day that that Jesus was rejected. He's talking about the day he was crucified. That's what that song is prophetically singing about. The day that Jesus was crucified. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in that. That he died for us. That's why he came. We're going to talk about the rest of it next time in Luke. But that's why he came. That's what we're excited about. That's what communion is all about. That day that we rejoice in. Our best day ever was the day Jesus died for us. He died on the cross in our place. He took our sin and our punishment upon himself. He was our substitute. So then we don't have to spend eternity separated from God. So we don't have to live an empty, worthless life here on earth. Because Jesus died for our sins so that we could have life. He rose again from the dead to prove he was the Son of God. And that he could prove that he could give us this brand new life. This resurrection power in our life. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in this day, the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what communion is all about, remembering what he accomplished for us through his body and through his blood. The bread representing his body, the cup of juice representing his blood. And it's also a time of of confession and purifying and to clear the way for communion. Communion means to connect with God, but sin gets in the way. And that's why communion is so important that once a month we come together and we focus on clearing away the garbage that's gotten in the way, the sin that so easily entangles, the things that keep us from that close relationship with God, communing with him. And it's also preparing us for the second coming. 
Did you know that's what communion is really all about? Getting us ready for the second coming. The first coming, he came to die for us. The second one is that he's going to come back for us and, and really do everything that we saw messianic, the Messiah, the messianic prophecies are all about. Breaking the, the strength of Rome and the world's power and, and, is, and is exerting his own authority and taking us back up to heaven with him. That's the second coming. But this is preparing communion, staying close to him and connect with him so that we're prepared for that second coming. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, listen to what it said, what it says. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what communion is. It's remembering. There's no special hocus-pocus thing with this. It's remembering. It's remembering what he did for us. That's why we take that bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. In remembrance. Once again, it's not salvation. It doesn't save us taking this cup. No, our faith saves us. There's no... Nothing to do with salvation. Some church groups teach you have to take the Lord's Supper to be saved. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's all looking forward to the second coming. And not just looking forward to it, but it's also preparing us, purifying us. Look what it says there, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So it's a very important time. There's two reasons why we should... I hope everybody takes communion today, but there's two very important reasons why we shouldn't. One is if we haven't put our faith in Jesus yet. Very, very important. We have to be able to recognize the body of Christ. That means we put our faith in Him. If you haven't taken that step yet, don't do it. But I hope you, you can... I hope you pray and put your faith in Christ this morning and do take it. But, but if you're not ready, wait. Nobody's looking around. We aren't videotaping. Nobody, it's just between you and God. The second reason is if there's sin in our life that we're not willing to confess. If there's something in our life that we're not willing to surrender, don't take the Lord's Supper. It's very, very serious. But I hope that today we all confess and we ask God to help us and give us his mercy and grace. You don't have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. But we have to be willing to let God, we have to be willing to surrender and ask him to forgive us and keep fighting the, the, the spiritual battles that we're fighting. Very, very important. To, to, and that's what I hope everybody here does. That we confess what needs to be confessed and take the Lord's Supper. That we put our faith in Jesus Christ and take the Lord's Supper. What we'll do in just a few moments is I'll pray and then we just kind of open it up. We have some music playing. And when you're ready, just come on up and, and take, take the bread and take the cup. You can take it by yourself. You can take it with someone you're with, a friend, family members, anybody. It's just between you and God. However you want to take it.
There's no right or wrong way to do it. But I, I hope everybody can, and I hope you do, but if you're not ready, it's okay. There's no, we're not judging anybody on that, okay? Let's pray. As we enter this time of communion, we ask the Holy Spirit to really speak to us and to be with us in a very special way. Because although the communion has nothing to do with salvation, it has a lot to do with our communing with God as the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts in a special way as we take the bread and take the cup. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would touch us in a very, very special way. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus. But you can still commune. You can commune with God through his son Jesus by putting your faith in him. You don't have to jump through spiritual hoops and foul rituals or sacraments in any way. You don't have to do any of that. You don't need a religious person, a pastor or a priest or a pope to help you come to Christ. It's just between you and God through his son, Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Did you hear that? Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Have you ever believed? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus? You can do that right now you can pray to God right now just pray he can hear your every thought just pray to him just say God I believe Jesus died for my sin I repent of that sin I don't want it anymore I don't want that old life anymore I repent I ask you to forgive me because I'm putting my faith in Jesus. My faith in Jesus, my trust, my hope in Jesus. I know he died on that cross for me. I know he rose again from the dead for me. I give him my life. If you've prayed that prayer of faith, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you now. And you can talk to God as your father anytime through his son Jesus. You now have life and you can commune with God anytime. This communion service is just a reminder that you can talk to him anytime. I want to encourage you as you take communion, to also commit to telling somebody about your decision. Maybe a family member or a friend here. So let somebody know, let me know. Let somebody know so we can help you in your new faith, in your new life in Christ, and be excited for you. Let somebody know. For those of us who have already put our faith in Christ, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? 
What do we need to confess so that we can commune? What in our life is not glorifying to God? What in our life goes against his word, which is against his will for our life? What do we need to come before the throne of grace and ask for mercy in grace to keep fighting the battle, for forgiveness and help to keep fighting this, whatever we're fighting, whatever struggle we're facing? Father, we need your grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to keep fighting, to keep asking for forgiveness, to keep seeing progressive victory. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help. And most important, Lord, the main reason why we don't want to sin is because we want to be close to you. We want to be able to commune with you. We want to have the joy of our salvation, the excitement of our relationship with you. Whatever blocking that, Father, we pray that we would surrender that this morning. In Jesus' name.